In the passage that was just read, um, what you may notice is that Paul introduces his mission. He says, this is what I'm all about for those of you who read this letter. I'm all about the gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone, or as he puts it, for you who are Gentiles and believe. And then throughout the rest of this epistle, he explains what it means to be called to be an apostle and to proclaim the gospel. Next week, we will focus on that famous phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This week, we remind ourselves of what the mission of the church is as it relates to the gospel. It's often true of us, right, that we interpret the Bible, as everyone else does, from our own particular perspective. Whether that's a very personal perspective, like my world and my kids' world and my wife's world and my work world, or whether it's just a larger perspective that most of us share, which is the Western world, the American world. And frequently what we try to do is understand a passage of Scripture from that vantage point and that vantage point alone. And while there's something to be said for that, and we certainly have cultural nuances in our own particular culture that help us to understand the Scripture and the Scripture inform our own culture, it's also true that we miss something when we forget what Paul was speaking into and speaking out of. Let me put it this way. Paul could not quite imagine. He really couldn't. He could not quite imagine describing the gospel of Jesus Christ without using the Old Testament scriptures. They were just inseparable for him. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ grew out of the Old Testament scriptures. And so, even when he's speaking to a group of people in Rome, many of whom are Gentiles, they know the background, he assumes, of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. And from that vantage point, he wants them to understand what the good news is. In this passage, he begins by reminding them that the gospel, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Paul calls in this first introduction to the book of Romans, the gospel of God. He says the gospel of God, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God was the original idea to begin with. You can see it, he says, through the prophets. You can see it, he says, by implication, through the whole Old Testament. The gospel of God was always the original intent of God for God's people, for God's world. Now, of course, you understand, as Paul does, if you know anything of the Old Testament, that this good news about God was, was revealed unequivocally and perfectly before the fall. And then when sin entered the world, this gospel, this good news about God for humanity becomes, well, almost destroyed. And at that early junction in history, God says in the book of Genesis, I'm going to fix this. What I want you to know is that 
this problem will be solved when through the birth of a woman, a real human being from your loin, Adam, will come forth and he will crush the head of the serpent, namely not just a snake, the serpent, the whole big problem called sin. This one that's going to be birthed from your loins, Adam, will crush the head of the serpent, but his heel will be bruised. And of course, Paul and all Christians since this time look back and see the figure of Jesus Christ looming large in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Yes, the fall destroyed what was originally perfect and good, but the gospel of God promises that the whole creation will be restored through the created being. Namely, the second Adam, that's Jesus Christ. And Paul might have said, if you advance beyond this initial story of beginnings, you're going to fast forward to Abraham and you're going to realize that God said to Abraham, I'm choosing you for a special purpose. I'm calling you out of a group of people to be another kind of people. And I want you to be the beginning of a great nation. From you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Through your child, the world will be blessed. And Abraham begins his journey of faith with God, waiting for God to deliver the promise so that he can bless the nations. And, of course, we see that as the promise concerning the coming of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Not only is Abraham chosen to bless the world, but the nation of Israel is chosen to bless the world. Not just one man, but a whole nation. And Israel's called to bless the world. Chosen not because they're good. Chosen not because they're great. Chosen not because they're special. But it seems, Paul says later on, it seems they were chosen because they were all the opposite of those things. It's as though God says, I'm going to take this weak, insignificant people and I'm going to manifest my glory through human weakness. And I'm going to demonstrate my glory to the world. So he uses the people of Israel and routinely, we know, don't we, that they fail. But their most gigantic, catastrophic failure is to not recognize the coming of the Messiah of God, namely Jesus Christ. Things had gone bad and good for them along the way, but this was epic when they did not see Jesus Christ as a Messiah of God. Israel's mission on the world had experienced the ultimate failure. It's at that point in human history that God does something qualitatively unique. He says, now, because of the Messiah of God, not because of Israel and its faithfulness, but because of the Messiah of God, I will replant the seed. The seed that will bring the promise. I will take this seed, namely Jesus Christ, and I will replant him in this earth through what Paul will later call the body of Christ. 
and I'm going to bring wholeness to all of humanity, through the whole creation, through the vehicle of these chosen people, namely Christ followers. And Paul is saying to them, do you know who those people are, my friends? It is you. You, saints at Rome, I'm talking about you. Paul might have said, though he didn't say, I'm talking about the beginning of this thing at the Feast of Pentecost. I'm talking about that epic moment where God made it clear on the day of Pentecost that this good news was for the whole world. That's what I'm talking about and you're part of this mission. By the way, isn't it ironic? No, it's divinely ironic. That the day of Pentecost, the day of the Feast of Weeks, it's often called, called the Feast of Harvest time, it's often called. That on that day, God chose to pour out his spirit on all human flesh so that all human flesh could hear the good news why is that ironic at least it is to me because it's a celebration of harvest God had sowed the seed all along he'd done the work of trying to call a people out of Canaan to represent the good news of God and now he says on the feast of weeks I'm going to show you the first fruits of the harvest. It is the church. So Paul says, I want you to understand your role in this present world. You are the called out ones. And it was God's intention from the beginning. Then we know concerning Paul as he continues to teach us about our mission in the world that since we're included in this story, it's our responsibility to live out this relationship with God publicly. In other words, Paul will say, as the Old Testament said to the people of Israel, God is calling you into a covenant relationship with him. He's saying, you are my special people, and because you're my special people, I want you to follow me in a special way. I want to be the Lord of your life, and I want that to be evident to all the nations. Let me read you a quote that comes from Peter Krager, or Craigie, uh, who's an Old Testament scholar. He speaks about this in his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. Likening the covenant people of God to the covenant people of Israel. He says, the covenant does not simply function to bind the people of Israel to their God. It does do that. But it also marks the liberation of people from subservience to a worldly power, namely Egypt. Remember the Exodus? He goes on to say, like other small nations at that time, that surrounded her, namely Israel. Israel was a vassal state. That means a state that's beholden to a larger state. That gets its identity and its protection from a larger state. Israel was a vassal state. But not to Egypt or the Hittites. But she owed her allegiance to God alone. 
When God called the people out of Egypt, he said to them, you shall have no other gods before you. When we, as the people of God, read the New Testament, we realize that we shall have no other gods before us. That Christ is our King and our Lord and our Master. And we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to Jesus Christ. We are vassals. Vassals to the Heavenly Father and the mission of God in this world. And everything about us should be defined by that mission. I, I don't know how um, to emphasize this any more dramatically. But if we ever understood it, it would be so revolutionary and so countercultural that it would explode our earthly paradigm of our mission in this world. What does it mean to be a covenant nation? A covenant people, in this case? It means that we're to be the light to all nations. All nations. It means that we're the international community of God. And this international community of God owes its allegiance to none of these flags. None of them. This international community of God owes its allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. And because of that, we live by the beat of a different drummer. We're called to be the light of the nations in at least two fundamental ways. First, we're called to be the light of the nations by being a priestly nation or a priestly people. Think of the Old Testament and then think of the people of God, the church in the New Testament. A priestly people, a group of people that represents God to the nations. What does that mean? It means to be set apart in holiness. That's utterly different than every other nation group or people group around us. It means to be odd. It means to be thoroughly peculiar. It means to be absolutely weird. If you do not feel weird, peculiar, odd in this present world, if you feel absolutely at home, it's time to take a gut check. Because you shouldn't. It means to be set apart as holy. It also means to mediate the priestly activity of the priests and the nation of Israel and the priestly activity of the body of Christ means to mediate God's presence and blessings. It means to be the mediator. It means the go-between. It means one who blesses. That's what the priest did for the people. He mediated between God and the people, and he blessed the people on behalf of God. And that's what we're supposed to do for our world as the church of Jesus Christ. 
We exist for the sake of the world. We exist for the sake of others. So why do we do all this, this thing called missionary work? Because we can't help it. That's what we're called to. We're called to go. We're called to share. We're called to be the light for all nations. That's why we do it. So a covenant people means a priestly people. A covenant people also means a holy people. Oh, by the way, speaking of the Old Testament, there's another apostle who couldn't hardly speak about the gospel without speaking about the Old Testament, and it's Peter. In 1 Peter, he uses these words, which just they're just full of the Old Testament. He says to the people who are reading his letter, believers in Christ, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. People of God, says Peter, be a holy people. Set yourself apart. Matter of fact, the old King James Version in 1 Peter says that you're a peculiar people. When the Old Testament uh, was in its early formation, the Torah, the book of the law, on several different occasions, uh, God told the people how they were to be separate and holy. Leviticus 19 is just one of those. We think of the law as kind of sterile and, and boring and overbearing and difficult to live under and all those things. But the law of the Lord, says the psalmist, the Psalm 19, is perfect converting the soul. It's absolutely necessary. Why is it so necessary? Not because it brings you righteousness. It is necessary because it brings light to the nations. It is necessary because when you live under the canopy of the grace of God in the law of God, you demonstrate to the world the grace of Jesus Christ. A different kind of people. Think about Leviticus 19. Look at it for yourself later. Here's what he does. He says, I want you to be holy just as I am holy. Obviously a high command that we can't quite reach, but you understand what he's saying. Follow my example, God says. Be holy like I'm holy as a people. Here's what I want you to do, and it breaks down this way. I want you to have respect in your family relationships. Honor your father and mother. I want you to be free from idolatry. 
There's all kinds of competing interests around you in these, these nations that press in upon you. They've got all kinds of gods. I want you to be free from idolatry. I want you to have care, concern, deep concern for the poor, the vulnerable, the elderly, and the foreigner. In other words, they are your responsibility. I want you to have fairness in economic dealings among yourselves and among the nations. I want you to have justice in your courts. Maybe a, a bit of a footnote there. I don't want those who are wealthy to have more justice than the poor. I want you to live lives of sexual purity. It doesn't matter what the world says around you about sexuality. I've got a different code for you. Live this way. I actually want you to care for non-human creation. I want you to care for the earth, God says in Leviticus 19. Not to destroy it and rape it and use it, but to care for it. And I want you to distance yourself from pagan religion. Boy, that's, that's one that doesn't go over very well nowadays, does it? Because all religions apparently are equal. All of them are seeking the truth. And all of them are somehow a ladder to God. So how could any of it really be wrong? Basically, the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and, and Exodus says, there's religions out there. And some of them are dead wrong. And if you follow them, you will die. What's the purpose of all this? This living as a priestly people. This living as a holy people. Back again to what I said. The entire purpose of this is not for ourselves. Not so we can feel good about ourselves. Not so we can find the blessing of God, although that comes. The purpose of this whole thing is so that we can be a light to the nations. That's really the purpose. See, we've become so introverted and so individualized in our culture that we think the gospel is about us. We think it's about me and God. And God says through his word, all the way through the New Testament too, the gospel is about the nations. You've been given a blessing so that you can turn it over, not so that you can keep it for yourself. Or to put it in the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, speaking to Israel, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. 
I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant people. And here's the purpose. And a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. To free the captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I have called you. Not for yourself, but for the world. So what's the future? <laughs> if that's the calling, what's the future? You know what the future is? It's not repetitive. Oh, it is. I know there's a certain cycle of events we can see in human history, but that's not the trajectory of history, according to the scripture. The trajectory of history is not cyclical, it's future. There is something out there. It's the completion of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so in this biblical narrative, we walk together towards that future. The goal of history is the restoration of all things. Uh, to put it in the words of Abraham uh, Herschel, he said, to live God's future in the present tense. That's our calling. Isn't that great? To live God's future. The way things ought to be. In the present tense. That's our calling. How do we do this? Let's keep it really simple, shall we? We need to remember the words of Micah. To live God's future in the present... He says, he's shown you what to do. Live justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. Just quickly, in conclusion. You can't do this automatically. It's a mandate that you must hear and you must follow. It means to engage. It means to be proactive. It means to do something. And among other things, it means that you resist, resist the orbit of the world, which constantly pulls you into its gravitational force. It takes effort to stay on mission, not just because of the world, but because we tend to turn inward, don't we? So we must stay on mission. That's why as an individual or as the church, we need to continue to reinforce it. Most of the time, we don't need new information, do we? We just need reminders. As a matter of fact, it's kind of um, insulting sometimes when I think about that. It's like, Bob, your job's not to impart any new information. It's just to remind us of what we ought to be. I like to think myself creative and coming up with new things. And No, no. Your creativity is one great big reminder. So you can't automatically do this. It's a mission. It's a mandate. You must receive it and act upon it. Second thing is you can't do it alone. Community is essential. 
We don't have the strength or the resources on our own to do this. And community guards us against pride. Because you know what? If you took it on as your mission, your individual mission, not only do you not have the resources, but if you did have them, then the mission would be all about you. And pride would creep in. We need each other in community for this mission and also to challenge ourselves. Because our legs get weak, our arms get tired, we just get lazy. And we need the other to say, it's time to pick it up and continue with the mission. We need to join others in community to be a part of the mission of God. It's a high calling. It's a great one. It's noble. It's us. Are you on board? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your calling. It gives us dignity, and it gives us hope. Thank you for your church, which is not me or the other. It's the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be in community in such a way that we are challenged by the mandate and challenged by others to stay on mission and challenged by others when we're tired that they can pick up the slack. We thank you for the mission of God in the church. We thank you for the ability we have uh, to extend that mission of God through other people. And we pray you will give us um, the energy and the insight to accomplish your will. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.